This is the best podcast. BEST stands for Business, Entrepreneurship, Startups, and Technology. I'm your host, Adam Sockledge, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon. Hello, hello, hello. How is everybody doing? And Wes, how are you doing? Hey, good, Adam. How's it going? Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday to you as well. Thank you for joining. I was just getting the show started. I love putting on a little bit of music just to kind of get the groove in a little bit. (laughs) And uh, we're going to have an exciting conversation today, Wes. Uh, We'll give it a minute for the room to populate and then we'll get started. But just a little bit of chit chat. Have you experienced social audio before? Have you been on Twitter spaces? Just kind of what's your experience with that before we dive in? I've done a couple Clubhouse sessions, but have actually never done Twitter Spaces. So this is my very first. Good, good, good. Well, that's exactly what I said. Uh, I asked to Lenny, um, who, if you haven't known Lenny, he also is an amazing content creator for folks in the audience. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, that he said this was one of his first, if not his first. So it's always a pleasure to have these conversations, but also to have one of the first with you as well, Wes. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you- Lenny's a Maven creator too. Yes, Lenny, Amanda, we're having a tremendous series of content creators <laughs> here. here. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get started, folks. As people pop you in, I want to welcome everyone here today. It's so exciting to be on Twitter Spaces and to talk with you folks, especially our special guest, Wes K.O. She is an amazing co-founder of Maven. Of course, she's worked at the Alt-MBA with Seth Godin. And ultimately, she's an amazing content creator, marketer, and overall strategist. So we're going to dive in today deep on topics about creating those unique points of views. How can you share Share your, your ideas publicly? How can you make sure that you're heard and get to yes? I mean, there's just so much that we can do in the content space, Wes. Um, I'm truly excited. So, you know, before we get diving in, are you ready, Wes? Yes, let's do it. Good, 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 good. And and by the way, my best friend growing up, his name was Wes. I just, I love that name. It's just great to have it oh, and to see it great. again as well. We're simpatico already. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good. All right. So let's help people learn a little bit more about you before we dive in, right? I gave you a quick introduction. I know that doesn't do justice for all the great things that you're doing, but why don't you just quickly give us a tip of the things that you're focused on right now as you think about marketing, entrepreneurship, of course, education, and the great stuff that you're doing at Maven. That'll just give some people some more context. Yeah, for sure. I'm co-founder of Maven, and we are a platform that makes it really easy for creators to build, host, and launch their cohort-based courses. So cohort-based courses are live, engaging courses that have a set start and end date. So the course might be three days, a week, three weeks, six weeks, but you're doing it with a group of people together in a community and going through this cohort together. And this is really in contrast to evergreen on-demand courses, like the kinds that you find on Teachable, LinkedIn Learning, uh, Skillshare, where it's it's pretty much a solo activity and the completion rates are a lot lower. So six to 10% versus with core-based courses, 75 plus percent. 
uh, with Maven. We started about a year ago now. Uh, the year has just completely flown by, so it's kind of wild saying that. Uh, but my co-founders and I were all uh, really passionate about education. So with me, I co-founded the Alt MBA with Seth Godin uh, before starting Maven. And then my co-founder, Gogan Biani, started Udemy, was co-founder of Udemy. Um, and then my other co-founder, Shreyans Bensali, was the first engineer and first employee at Venmo and scaled and, and built out the team there. And then uh, started his own education company, Socratic, that was acquired by Google. So three of us came together and were really excited to tackle some of the opportunities and challenges that we saw with with this trend of live online learning. Um, and yeah, so that's pretty much what I've been obsessed with in the last year is building, uh, building, operating, I think so many, so many of us, you know, regardless of whether you have a founder title or not, are builders, operators, marketers. I think anyone who interacts with, with a customer is a marketer. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot that we can dive into here. Yes, absolutely. And it has been a busy year for you, I know, with all the great growth that you've got going on at Maven and, of course, the A16Z investment and then just creating all the content here on Twitter. It's easy to see, uh, you know, how powerful this information is. So you can you're doing it all, Wes, and I absolutely love it. That last point that you just chimed in on is a great way for us to segue and continue the conversation as we think about education and as we think about live, right? So live education, but live uh, entertainment and live audio as well and creating that aspect of engagement. It's so important because you know, something that really resonates with me, I learned from uh, the head of TED, the global organization, uh, Chris Anderson. He said that you know we're really learning about storytelling back from the cavemen and cavewomen days when we were drawing on walls, right? Communicating stories. And that's how we would teach each other is by sharing these stories and engaging with each other. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about that aspect of the cohorts and how you're engaging with them. And then we're going to start diving into a little bit more of those uh, other questions and topics that we that we mapped out in advance about, you know, again, point of views and engaging with communities, engaging with audiences and stuff like that. But a little bit more on this topic, what is that power of storytelling as it relates to doing education and live in, in, in engagement as well? Yeah, I think if we look at the past 10 years of online education, it's really been dominated by the format of massive open online courses, so otherwise known as MOOCs. So these are the teachable LinkedIn learning Udemy courses that are basically a series of static videos. And the the teaching is one one directional. It's a sage on stage, you know, some expert teaching everyone and everyone else listens and, and it's a pretty passive experience. So it's it's not it's not very engaging. There's not um, a lot of discussion. You're basically passively consuming content. And then, you know, flash forward today, and, and what I believe is going to be the next 10 years of online education is this idea of cohort-based courses. So cohort-based courses as a concept didn't really exist, you know, five, six years ago. When Seth Godin and I started the Alt MBA, it was, you know, this entirely experimental project that we had no idea if it would work because at the time everything was these you know these pre-recorded video courses and uh people were not really engaging them you know i mentioned the low completion rates and i don't know about you but i have definitely bought a ton of courses that have sat gathering digital dust i have a skillshare course somewhere on hand lettering calligraphy 
and another one on classical music appreciation that I think I watched three minutes of before I said, hey, I'm going to come back to this later, and, and just never did. This was like five years ago. So I think a lot of other people have had this experience, which is why I think the cohort-based model, as, it's, as, as we've come to call it, and the focus on bi-directional learning and storytelling and discussion and community is so much more valuable for students, for learners, for professionals who want to level up. Because basically in this bi-directional model, yes, you have an instructor who is, who is there, you know, gathering the community together and sharing their best principles, frameworks, you know, guiding you in different lessons. But you also have students who are there teaching each other. And then students also teach the instructor. So I remember talking to Lee Jin, she coined the term passion economy. She was a, an investor at Andreessen Horowitz. And she was saying, she has a maven course. And she was saying that she was shocked that she learned just as much from her students as they did from her. And that her students were all VCs, operators at different trade economy companies, founders. And they would take the frameworks that she taught them and find edge cases and find uh, new examples and apply her frameworks in different ways that she had never thought of before. And this in turn sparked a whole cycle of inspiration where she's now working on a couple other banger essays and new frameworks based on all the different, uh, all the different conversations that she had um, in, in her course. And Another example. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, please do. I'm going to save my question for right after. Another quick example is Sahil Lavingia, CEO of Gumroad. So he also has a name course. And Sahil was writing a book, Minimalist Entrepreneur, uh, when he was building his course. And one of the reasons for wanting to do a core-based course and get everyone together live and share stories and, and discuss debate was because he wanted to test out the concepts in his book. You know, usually writing a book is, is very one-directional. You kind of write it and the author goes off and they work with their editor they might show the draft to a couple of close friends, but you know, that compared to the interaction that he had with his students, a lot of them who were, uh, you know, the target audience of his book on entrepreneurs, basically who, who didn't want to do the VC path, um, you know, all of them getting together in one place and, and, you know, during the duration of his course, sharing stories, sharing, you know, whether these frameworks were applicable, seeing what people were confused by what, versus what they really resonated with and wanted to learn more about. Sahil was able to get so much uh, deeper with his book because he had this this amazing community sharing their stories and, and him being able to share his stories all live. So I think there's a lot happening with this trend towards uh, with live, with storytelling, with community, being much more of a bi-directional experience that benefits both the student and the instructor. Mm. And something that you brought up, and, and I want to welcome the folks that are just joining the room now. We've got a lot of tremendous creators in here. I can already see the faces the, and the common faces that I've seen before. Samantha, Samantha, George, Noel, Amanda, of course. Amanda, good to see you folks. Um, and so many, many, many more. The creators in here, there's things that you can be learning from this conversation and from Wes that are tremendous. Something that you just brought up was looking at things from a different perspective. And, you know, folks, if you click on Wes's uh, account and her profile right there, the first thing that you talk about is having a spiky point of view, right? Can you, and, and you've shared it before with folks, but here right now, define what you mean by that. And then I'd love to dive in what makes uh, an important spiky point of view in your opinion. Yeah, so the idea 
that inspired me to come up with Spiky Point of View is the fact that we live in a pretty noisy world. And no matter what you do, there are probably hundreds, if not thousands, of people who have a similar skill set as you, who have a similar background, who maybe have a similar educational experience, worked at similar companies. And so relying just on your background alone isn't enough to stand out anymore. And what you need to have to stand out is what I call a spiky point of view. So a spiky point of view is a perspective that you believe in strongly, rooted in your personal experience and expertise that other people might disagree with. So if you ask 10 different marketers, they might have 10 different spiky points of view about marketing. And some of them might be the opposite points of view. And yet equally correct based on different circumstances, different uh, lived experiences, different situations. And I think the important thing to call out with a spiky point of view is that it's not a hot take just for the sake of stirring the pot. Because people who do that, it's pretty annoying. I mean, we can all see it. Uh, and and that, that intentionally contrarian view is really not the point. The point is you want to add value to your audience. And if you just say things that they already know, that's not really adding value because they already know it and their eyes are just going to glaze over. But if you share a perspective that is a bit unexpected, that you really believe in that might be the opposite of what other people around you have been saying and that you've always thought like, oh, I can't believe people don't understand this thing. Or I can't believe people keep saying X when in my experience, it's really about Y. Like those are the kinds of spiky points of view that a, a lot of times we're not really sure if we should share it because it's almost like, oh, am I, am I in the wrong here that I think the opposite of everyone else? Or are people going to latch on and, you know, and, and, you know, debate with me or disagree with me. Uh, but those a lot of times are the points of view that are the most useful for your audience mm. that will help them think differently and, and help them see their own situation in a new light. So Wes, I'd love to go through an example, right? And, and not something from the past. I, I want right now, right here in this moment. And, and there's a question that uh, I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss and, and he has some rapid fire questions, but I try to work those in. There's one that aligns with this topic. And it, he asks like, what is something that you believe that other people think is insane? And I'm sure that you have many in the past, but what's something right now that you think is a spiky point of view, maybe that you even haven't sh uh, shared publicly, but that you're thinking about and that folks in the audience, this would be something new. And, and if folks are interested to come up, I'll bring you up in just a bit. We'll have the, a, a conversation, a group conversation. But back to that question, back to you, what's something right now that's a spiky point of view that's new, it's developing in your mind? Oh, wow. Okay, that's a good one. So I have a bunch of, half-baked spiky points of view. I don't know if I would call them a spiky point of view yet because I'm still in the process of validating it and testing it and seeing if if I actually even really believe it. So, um, you know, we might listen in on this a week later and I would have changed my mind, so I reserved the right sure. to do that. But I think, I think one thing that's very top of mind for me right now is hiring and growing our team. Um, I just posted four or five roles on the business side at Maven and am knee deep in recruiting and hiring. Uh, so, so a lot of the spiky points of view I have right now are based on that. Um, but, but this one, this one is almost so spiky that I, that I don't know if I should say it. I'm going to go ahead and trust this audience to, you know, give me the benefit of the doubt. So I think that a lot of people talk about how, how transferable skills are that they were doing this in this industry and that can apply there. And, you know, a lot of soft skills, especially are very transferable. So I, in general, believe that, and 
I also think that there are some skills that are less transferable than I expected. So in my personal experience, I've seen, uh, I've, I've vetted certain candidates where um, I, I looked them up, I read their writing, read their blog, uh, read different side projects and micro sites that they might've put up, read their Twitter. And it's like, okay, this person is a solid writer. And then I start working with them you know, maybe on a small project on a freelance basis or something, uh, or sometimes I even hire them and then, and then realize this. Um, but that the things that I thought they would be good at based on what I saw kind of in the public domain was actually not that transferable to the things that that I wanted them to do, even though it was maybe, you know, um, one degree different, like a very adjacent function. So I'll give, I'll give an example you would assume that someone who can write great tweet threads, I know this is like super tactical of an example, but you would assume someone who could write great tweet threads could also write a great blog post or article. And that's not really true. Cause I have found people who I've, I've tried to, I've, I've tried to find people who could turn a thread into an article. And I found that it only works the other way around. It only works when I give them an article that I've already written and ask them to help me translate it into a thread. And so that, that I think is just fascinating because you would think that this, there's a lot of skill that goes into writing tweet threads. You have to think about what hooks people in right away, economy of words, flow, the narrative arc in 280 characters. So there's, there's actually a lot of skill in that. And so I would think that that skill would apply to, to kind of, you know, one degree away, this adjacent thing of writing an article. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I haven't really found that to be true. And I think I was thinking about this literally in the shower yesterday. And I think that for something like writing, quote unquote writing, it's so broad and it's the final expression of a lot of ideas, a lot of strategy and thinking and, you know, a hundred micro decisions go into this thing that eventually, you know, eventually, eventually ends up being words and images usually is what, is what customers interact with. Right. So on the landing page, it's words and images above the fold, words and images, you know, on the landing page, um, a tweet thread is words, um, ads, words and images. So if we kind of break down to the first principles of what the final result is that all this thinking goes into, it ends up being either words or images. And so for something like writing, we think of it as a, a, a monolithic thing that it's like, oh, writing. And, you know, maybe we talk about writing for different circumstances. But I think a lot of the challenge of um when someone can write in one situation versus another is, is actually the thinking behind it. So it's actually not a writing problem. It's actually a thinking problem. And someone, if you think about going back to the threads example, it's hard for someone to, to expand on insights that aren't really their own. Mm-hmm. So, right. So like that actually kind of makes sense. Right. When, when I come full circle, it's like, okay, so of course, if someone's reading my thread, they, it's hard for them to fill in the blanks from a 10, 10 thread, uh, 10 tweet thread into a thousand word article because a thousand word article is higher fidelity. So it's kind of like going from, um, you know, on TV, like I love law and order, um, and criminal minds, et cetera. There's always that tech scene where, where there's a photo of a blurry license plate or a blurry, like shitty, you know, convenience store camera, um, footage. And they're like, Oh, I see that person. Or I see the license plate zoom sharpen and then you know the tech the tech person clicks a few buttons and and all of a sudden the license plate is super sharp the person's face is super sharp and so and it's always like okay that is not how it works like you can't add pixels you can't add 
fidelity when there was none. And so I think this idea of, you know, thinking about transferable skills, thinking about what is the root problem? Like the root problem here isn't really writing. It's actually um, thinking and insights and like having a place where the, where those insights are coming from, not just, you know, the writing. Um, I'm thinking about all, I know this is kind of like all over the place. So this is, this is what it looks like guys before a spiky point of view, before I tweet something that is a spiky point of view, it's like all these jumbled thoughts that are kind of interrelated and I'm kind of figuring it out and kind of thinking like, does this apply to this and does this solve that problem? And anyway, that's something that I'm, about right now. And, and I'd be curious, uh, you know, folks in the audience, if this resonates with you, also having ideas and thinking it through, some of them are on the back burner. And I know, Wes, you probably have a huge uh, file with all of your ideas that you're working on in draft mode. I have that as well. You know, hit that emoji sign. I'd just be curious if other people feel the same way when you're creating content, you know, you're developing your ideas. It's not necessarily a writing problem, but it's a thinking problem. So hit those hearts, hit those smiles. And back to you, Wes, I'd be curious. Um, to dive in just a little bit deeper about that as you talk about threads. So folks, if you click on Wes's profile, at the top you have a pinned tweet with uh, some of the best threads that, you, that you've written in the past year, and they've gone viral, right? Thousands and thousands of engagements. They're fantastic, I read them all. I'd be curious as you write these, and I'm sure there's so much that we could dive into, but I always love to give people in the audience just really quick insights of what makes something powerful. So when you're writing these threads, is there one thing that you just remember every time to do um, that could be related to, you know, I know that you mentioned uh, the flow, the arc, et cetera, that really, really resonates and, and that we can just share with the audience so they can take away from that as well? Yeah, I think the thing that I try to remind myself of when I'm drafting threads is what would be really valuable for my audience? So that's one. And then the other is how can I make the hook interesting enough that people want to read the next tweet? and then make the next tweet interesting enough that they want to read the next one and the next and the next. And a lot of what I've learned about writing threads is from Maven courses, actually. So Sawhill Bloom and Julian Shapiro have a course called Audience Building, and Sawhill leads his course. He grew his audience, I think, from, I don't know, like 5,000 people to 200,000 or something like that in a year. It was, I forget the actual numbers, but it was pretty insane. It was definitely over 100,000 in a year. Yep. Um, and so his whole course is teaching you how to do that in really practical, accessible steps. So a lot of what I've learned is from principles that I've learned from Sahil. And then Sean Puri, also another creator who grew his audience super fast. I don't know how many followers Sean has, but it's a lot. And he also grew very recently and very quickly. Um, and Sean has a power writing course which is also all about writing for the internet specifically. So not just threads, but you know, writing copy for landing pages, writing email copy, writing um, sales pitches, cold outreach. So basically writing for, for the age that we live in now. I need to go sign up for these because I absolutely love what Saw Hill and Sean uh, write as well. And that sounds amazing. Yeah, Audience so building. Good. I know. Well, and let's dive in a little bit, if you don't mind, because audience building is obviously something that's important and valuable for folks in the audience. And it's something that, uh, you know, Sahil has a great course on. I recommend people go and sign up for that on Maven. But at the same time, what's something that you're pulling away from that topic? You know, as we talk about audience building and, and you and I had talked about mapping that out as uh, what helps build strong communities, right? And how can we keep them engaged? Let's dive into that a little bit. Tell us uh, when you think about your audience, who is it and what do you do to connect with them and to create that engagement? What are those specific things? Well, I'm an introvert and kind of self-conscious by nature. So I think the biggest thing, the biggest unlock 
for engaging with my community is to not be as afraid of them. I know it sounds really weird, but I, you know, I overthink a lot. And so, you know, should I tweet this? Should I not? Like, are people going to take this the wrong way? Is this too simple? And I think giving, giving people the benefit of the doubt that, you know, these are good people who want to get to know you and you want to get to know them. I feel like that mindset shift removed a lot of the fretting and, um, and just psychological, like, burden of like, oh, like everything has to be perfect right off the bat. And, um, you know, everything just has to be great. Like, I think the idea of thinking about what, what could be valuable for other people that I found valuable for myself, I've, I go back to that a lot. Because it's hard for me to think like, is this going to be valuable for someone random? But if I feel like me from five years ago, me from a year ago, me from last week, really, like, hey, I learned something in the last week. Let me share it with you because that might be interesting for you too. I feel like that makes me feel a lot better about um, trusting my internal barometer about, hey, is someone else going to find this interesting? And there's a lot of a lot of the threads that I've, I've um, written. So all the ones that I, I have pinned, um, those are all based on ideas that I I tried for myself for a really long time. Like the brand versus performance marketing spectrum, like that was that was something that I had a a a, a vague feeling and discomfort about for like seven years working in house and with clients and you know on my own stuff. And never had the vocabulary to talk about. And then one day it kind of came to me and then, you know, I built on it and then worked on it for like five months and then eventually published. So like, that's, you know, that's an example of something where like, it was so valuable for me to have the vocabulary to talk to people about, are we prioritizing brand marketing, which has a longer, um, a longer feedback loop for returns where we're, you know, Cartier putting up a billboard in Times Square, they are not expecting you to go out right away, run to the store and buy a Cartier watch. They are expecting that when you, when the time comes for you to invest in a watch for yourself, then you will choose Cartier. And so like that versus performance marketing, direct marketing, where this might look like coupons, you know, two for one, BOGO, it might look like, uh, hey, the price is going up in two weeks. Um, it might look like conversion optimization, you know, improving the copy on a button, uh, SEO, paid ads, like all of that was, you know, all, all the, the performance marketing, direct marketing has um, faster returns. And so there's this trade-off, but like this idea in itself was something that um, I didn't have the vocabulary for, for a long time. And it was very, <clears throat> excuse me, it was very frustrating. And then when, when I put it into a framework and put it into words, I heard so many marketers, uh, you know, DM me, email me, et cetera, being like, yes, like this is exactly what I need to tell my clients. Or, this is exactly what I need to tell my CEO or this is exactly what I want to tell my team. And just having that shared language, I think is so empowering. So mm. whenever I find a gem like that, that's like, yes, like this, I wish I would have had this. This is so helpful for me. Even now I try to share that. Ooh, that's amazing. And something that you started with is uh, you said you're an introvert. Is that right? Yes. 
It's interesting that you say that, and I'd be curious in the audience if you guys are, are the same way, because two things have happened in the last uh, several months. You know, I put out a poll on Twitter. I said, are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Are you an ambivert? An ambivert is a mixture of both. I am that ambivert where I'm very much an extrovert. I love talking with people, uh, but there's times that I just enjoy that that privacy and that one-on-one that -on -one time type of thing. And interestingly, that result came back with a significant amount of people saying that they're introverts. Also, as I talk with people on the Twitter team, I've heard that it's surprising the amount of people on Twitter that are introverts. Now that might make sense, right? Because it's a it's a nice medium. You can just share your thoughts as you as you want, as you can write them out, etc. Um, but it still gives you that aspect of you know engaging with other people. And they said if you could, Adam can help figure out a way to. to create a rational way to get more people to speak up, that would be tremendous. And so that's why I love hosting these rooms is because yes, I get to talk with you and we pull a lot of value out and share that with our audiences, but we can also bring people up and you know help them either ask their questions, but work on their introversion, right? And make it more of a power skill. So in, in just a second, I'd love to ask a question about how you can how you think about helping people speak up and, and to share more publicly. But before I do that, I just wanna remind people and refresh the room. It's, it's so great to see everyone here we're talking with Wes Ko about all things content creation and marketing and the work that she's doing in the online education space. There's so many great creators in the room and I wanna start bringing some people up in just a few minutes to ask questions. Again, I see familiar faces. I'd love to see Amanda, Samantha. There's so many great people. Go ahead, raise your hand. I'll get you in the queue and I'll bring you up in just a few minutes. Um, but while we're doing that, Wes, back to that question that I was just bringing up you have a great aspect of helping people speak up and to share more publicly. Can we continue down on this route and, and to help you hear or help us hear uh, and listen to you about what you think works well when people are trying to speak up more, when they're trying to share their ideas publicly and to help them get their ideas heard? Yeah, definitely. So I want to share two, two buckets of thoughts here. So the first bucket is if you are organizing events or communities of people, how can you as an organizer encourage people to speak up more? So we talk about this a lot in the Maven Course Accelerator, which is a three week free course that I teach on how to build a core based course. We have hundreds of creators come in and a lot of people are experts. They're you know, consultants, authors, uh, Twitter influencers, et cetera. They want to build a course, but they don't have a lot of experience um, teaching or uh, facilitating, moderating. And so one of the things that we talk about is creating situations where people of different personality types and, uh, and different with different levels of comfort speaking up, have a chance to speak up. So if you are in a zoom room with 200 students, it can be pretty intimidating to, to, you know, unmute yourself to say something, but you know, so you don't, you don't really just want to rely on that. You don't want that to be the single mode of your course. So putting people into breakout rooms of four to five people, for example, that's a small group now where people who are more shy about speaking up now have a chance to speak up or putting people in one-on-one -on -one situations. So teaming people up in pairs and having them work together. That's even more of a chance for someone who, you know, usually feels like they have to fight for the mic to be able to speak up. We're putting people into smaller sub cohorts too, like 20, you know, if there's 200 students putting people into sub, sub cohorts of 20 people, we do that in Alt MBA uh, or all of the above. I mean, a lot of the best courses do all of the above and break students up into these different configurations so that it's not just a single personality type, but, you know, the kind of person who feels super comfortable speaking in front of big groups 
that ends up contributing and participating. So that ends up being a much better experience for everyone. So that's that's kind of the, the organizer hat if you are bringing people together. And then in terms of what you can do as an individual, um, I have a few things that have worked for myself. So I can, I can definitely share those. These are my secret pro tips. So I'm very excited to share those. So one is to put yourself in situations where you're not competing for the mic. I personally find it very stressful to try to cut in when there are a lot of people talking and just trying to time it right. And in the moment that you have the thing that you want to say in your head uh, and you're about to chime in, someone else changes the topic and the moment is over. Like, I don't know how many times it's happened to me. And so I think one thing that, that you can do to get yourself to speak up more is to put yourself, put yourself in a situation where you're not competing for the mic. So for example, doing uh, a podcast recording. So if you're a marketer going on a marketing podcast and sharing some of your best frameworks and principles. So when you're on a podcast, the dynamics are really clear. It's you and the host. The host is there to ask you great questions and you are there to share useful things that their audience might find helpful. And it's not, it's not like a panel, for example. Like I think that's, that's the opposite dynamic where you know it's you plus five or six people on a panel. Everyone's kind of trying to get the mic. And then the minute that you share something thoughtful and insightful or you know, advocate for a certain point, the next second, Someone's like, eh, I disagree with that. Moving on, blah, 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 right? So there's there's not a lot of that thoughtfulness that, can, that you can capture in in a situation where you have more time to convince your audience of something that you really believe in and to help sway them and persuade them and change your mind. And I know some introverts who have a, a hard no panel rule because they just, they don't want to deal with that. Yeah, uh, I think teaching a course, doing a guest lecture, those are other ways where you can showcase your expertise without competing with other people. Love it. Love it, Wes. And, and that's why even right now, right, I enjoy this one-on-one -on -one conversation, but it gives us a little bit of access to engage with folks by bringing them up, right? Even just adding one at a time is a slow progression. Uh, of course, we could bring up 10 or 12, but we're not going to do that. That can be very overwhelming. So as I host these conversations, I love diving in one-on-one. -on -one. It keeps it tight, intimate, uh, especially for people that may be introverted or not. Um, but then we can start bringing people up. So a reminder, folks, go ahead, raise your hand. We'll get you in the queue. We'd love to hear questions from you guys about anything and everything marketing, online education, uh, anything that you think Wes can cover, and she can cover a lot of different topics. One thing that I've been saving on my back burner because I wanted to ask you as well is, okay, we know you've done alt school. We are all MBA. We've, you've worked with Seth Godin. So of course, we'd love to hear more about that. But I'd love to hear who are the people. So when you think of the word successful, who are the first one or two people that come to mind and why? Hmm, that's an interesting one. I, okay, so the first person who came to mind was Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers from the TV show. Yeah, keep going. Um, and, and so the reason I think Mr. Rogers is because he encompasses a lot of the things that I admire. Um, I, I read this really great article, I think it was in, the Atlantic or something. I'll have to send you the link to it. But um, basically, he was very thoughtful about creating children's programming. And this was in a time when people, like, you know, were putting a lot of content out and weren't really thinking too much about how it was affecting kids. And he had this 10-point framework that he had his, his uh, writers, his TV writers and production crew, et cetera, uh, his director use and it basically talked about how to be precise with words. Um, and he was saying something like, 
you know, if you, if you use, if you use a metaphor, for example, and say like, oh, that just blew up. And you meant that just blew up as in like, that was great. And, and, you know, it got popular. A kid might hear that and think that something physically blew up and they might get scared by it and they might get confused. And so he was so precise with, with his thinking and so precise with his words and uh, the second order effects that his words might have. Um, and he really, he really moved forward this, this entire category of children's programming because of this. Um, and so when I think of success, I think about someone who has left a legacy and improved a category or improved a function because they were rigorous about it, that they were thoughtful, they, they kind of elevated and, and raised, raised the floor on, on what that category looked like. So, um, I think of, Mr. Rogers. I, I love that. And it's actually, it's quite unique because most people probably know the name, but you don't hear many people say that. And it's very powerful because everything that you just mentioned resonates with me. And, and I have a, uh, a five-year-old daughter, actually she turned six in just three days. But as I try to explain things and teach to her, I have to simplify it down to a five-year-old, right? And I think I've heard that before. Many people say, if you have an idea, if you have a, a product or a pitch that you're trying to communicate, simply do it you know, in the most effective way and simple way possible so that it resonates with them. Because if it can resonate with a five-year-old, it can re resonate with almost anybody else, right? So um, I love that, Wes, and there's things that we can dive into, but the power of social audio and live audio is being able to connect with people. So let's get this conversation going. I've brought some people up to the stage and I'd love for more people to join if you want. I'll add you to the queue, so raise your hands. We're gonna go with the mic first, and then Henry, and then Enikit as well. So the mic, it's nice to see another mic. My name's Adam. What's your name and what's in your mind today? Hey, my name's Mark. Um, what's on my mind today is I'm currently a student, a full-time student, and I also just launched my own like free educational and networking discord just because, you know, when I got involved in the space, I didn't really have a group that I, I went from group to group and couldn't really find like a place where, you know, people were teaching. But I think there are a lot of people who are in a similar position who want to learn about this space. And anyway, I'm having a hard time really growing this community organically because um, I don't want the wrong people to come into this community because, you know, there are a lot of people uh, scamming right now. There are a lot of bots. There's a lot of money grabbers. And I just want it to be for people who are truly looking to build and create in the Web3 space. Uh, so I was just wondering, could you give me some advice in terms of like content creation and, and um, how to kind of engage my followers and grow my following? By the way, thank you so much for having me up here. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so first, I love what you're doing. This is really awesome that you found a need that you had and um, are bringing together a community to work on it together, share what you know, um, be a resource that you wish you would have had earlier. I think that's really awesome. Um, so I think there are two parts that stood out to me. One is the community piece, and the other is audience building piece. So I think with the community piece, most people think that community just kind of happens. And from what I've seen working with some of the best community managers in the world, I feel like there's so much that they're doing behind the scenes that most people don't see. And, and they just, all they see is, is a vibrant community when it works. It's kind of like event planning where no one notices the event planning until you run out of food or the, you know, the, the audio, you know, kicks out and stops working. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, you know, this event sucks. 
So I feel like community, community management is very much the same way where behind the scenes, there's a lot that the best community managers do to encourage people to connect, to encourage them to share. I mean, I remember in all, in all MBA when uh, our alumni Slack, we've since moved to, to discourse, but um, the alumni Slack was feeling a little bit dead. It was feeling a little quiet. And I looked into the stats and realized that something like 60, 65% of chatter was in DMs. So people were talking to each other. They just weren't doing it in public channels, but it still wasn't great that they weren't doing it in public channels because it just, it made everyone else think that no one else was there, even though people were actually talking to each other. And so I was thinking about how do I get people to post more than public channels and share a bit more publicly. And so I had this idea that I wanted to test out that I called Monday micro prompts which is basically Monday at noon, I would post a question that the community could chime in on and also benefit from. So it might be something like, you know, what's, what's a book that you've reread multiple times? Or, you know, what's a book that you're reading right now that you think other people should check out? Or what's your favorite productivity tool? Or what's a purchase that you've made uh, that's made the biggest impact on your life? Or some questions like that that are kind of fun to answer. There's not really a wrong answer. Um, and it's helpful for everyone else in the community. Mm. So before doing that, though, I DM'd 20 to 25 alumni to tell them about this in a one-on-one DM to say, hey, tomorrow I'm going to post this at noon. Would you be up for answering that question and chiming in? And that is really the key of all of this. Because if I had just done, if I had just posted at noon, remember how people were not really talking in the general channel? Like I probably would have gotten two responses and it would have looked dead and that would have signaled to everyone else that this was dead and you know not a cool party you wanted to be a part of. And so DMing people behind the scenes meant that I got 25 people to agree to chime in at noon. And so when it came time for me to post that, <clears throat> I posted the question and then boom, 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 boom. It was one it was one comment after another, thoughtful recommendations, thoughtful stories, et cetera, et cetera. And it signaled to everyone else, A, I mean, those notifications went out to everyone else that, hey, people are posting, so that attracted more people. And B, also helped allow people who were seeing this for the first time to model the answers that other people were giving. And so, like, this is a good example of something that, that happens behind the scenes where if you were just an observer or a participant in the community, you would think that, oh, Wes just posted this question and look at all these people contributing and chiming in. Like, isn't that cool? And you wouldn't have known that behind the scenes, there was this one-to-one kind of manual, human-to-human, mono-e-mono effort happening. And so I think with communities, it's super important to think about those those activities that you are doing behind the scenes to, to fuel what eventually gets people talking. That is Brilliant. And Wes, I love that. You know, I've used that in other ways, but that makes a lot more sense now, especially as you mentioned asking a question. It's something that I've picked up on that um, as I pay attention to the the live audio space, of of course, and I see people going through the Twitter spaces uh, creator program, I've seen the people that were accepted. They're starting to very specifically post just open-ended questions for folks in their community to answer. So it kind of ties into that as well. And and I love that. So great question, uh, Mark, the mic. And uh, thank you for answering that, Wes. Let's keep moving along because we have just a little bit of time left and we have some great people here on stage. Uh, We're going to go to Henry 
next. And I'd love to see some more ladies up here as well. So raise your hand, come on up. Um, so far, most of the people in the queue are guys. So I wanna make sure that we have a, a nice, fair and balanced uh, group up here with other lady voices as well. So go ahead, raise your hand, we'll come on up. And then Henry, you've been waiting patiently. Thanks so much. What's on your mind? Hey, thanks for the mic. Hello, Wes, how you doing? Um, so yeah, hey. I have a question. By the way, sorry, I wanted to say I love the articles on your website. They're like so, 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 so amazing. Um, so I have actually run a cohort-based um, learning program before, right? I'm from Lagos, Nigeria. I did it like a few years ago. And my question is this, Rest: How do you scale a cohort-based learning program? You know, it's... Because with every cohort, you kind of have to be hands-on, you know, and it could it it could easily get like over overwhelming. So I just wanted you to share like some of your tips and tricks, like how do you scale? How do you think? How are you thinking about it? Like currently, have you had challenges scaling? Um, and yeah, I want to know what you thought about that. Yeah, great question. I think with core-based courses, one of the, the most magical things about them is that you can fit them around your personality, your strengths, your, um, your preferences. So I know of a bunch of core-based course instructors who have, you know, 20-some students every cohort, 20 to 30, and they love, you know, something that's more intimate and smaller. And then I've also worked with a bunch of creators who have scaled to thousands of people co per cohort. So Tiago Forte from Build Second Brain was one of my clients before I started Maven. And he has over a thousand students in Build Second Brain each time he runs it. Section four is another example. Professor Galloway from NIU's um, course. He was also one of my clients. I helped him design and build his proprietary sprint. And so the sprints are now doing 1,500 students per cohort. So there's this whole range of how many students do you want to have? How many times per year do you want to run your course? So these all in, impact the scale. So if you want to run, you know, twice a year, four times a year, all times four times a year, um, section four runs, I mean, they have multiple sprints now, but they're doing, you know, two to three sprints per month. Um, so, so the scale really depends on, on your vision for how big do you want this to be? Um, you know, how many times you want to run it. So given that, I think there, there are a few principles that might help. Um, one is breaking groups into smaller sub cohorts can be very helpful to maintain that sense of that personal touch and human connection and encourage students to meet each other on a deeper level. So if you have, you know, let's say a thousand students in one cohort, you know, you can see how students might easily get lost there. But if you're breaking people up into subgroups based on interest groups or based on uh, just randomly, you know, putting people into cohorts of, of 20 and getting letting people mix with people that they normally wouldn't meet, um, putting people into smaller groups, learning pods, as we call them in Alt-MBA, those are all ways that you can scale the, the feeling of that personalized touch without, um, you know, without necessarily, you know, personally meeting with everyone. I think another way that you can do it is thinking about hiring coaches or other staff. 
So coaches, TAs, alumni mentors, they come in a lot of different names, but these are essentially staff members that help you as the instructor scale your ability to work with all these different students. And so, you know, when you are, when you have 20 to 30 students, you can pretty much still see everyone in one, you know, Zoom screen, you can, you, everyone's in one place. When you have a smaller cohort, your own personality is enough to fill in the gaps. So it, you actually can be a little bit less planned because, you know, if there's 20 faces on Zoom and I see that halfway through my lecture that someone is confused, I can switch gears and we can spend more time talking about this thing that people want to talk about. Or I can adjust the next, you know, working session or breakout that we were about to do and, you know, and adjust it so that we spend more time on, on you know, the topic, some other topic. So your, your own personality and you just noticing what's working, what's not is enough to just chime in. But when you have a cohort of 100, 200, 300 people, it's harder to do that. And so having coaches, TA, staff members who are able to work more directly with students gives you more leverage. And it means that they can handle some of the things that, that you're not as good at and that you aren't able to do. And that takes a lot of work off of your plate to focus on, on the things that you are great at. So I think thinking about ways to, to work with different um, staff can be really helpful. And a lot of, a lot of times it's, you know, part-time people who are alumni of your course. Like that actually is one of the best ways to find people who are simpatico and who understand your course's philosophy and agree with it and, and are, are excited about it are people who went through your program. So with Alt MBA, for example, we recruited coaches from our the most recent alumni class. And so that gave a bunch of people, new people, a chance to coach, to get back to the community and to bring them deeper into the Alt MBA community. This is amazing. Henry, thank you so much for asking that question. And Wes, thank you for answering it. You know, I, Wes, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're hitting almost at the limit. Do you have a few more minutes for a few more great questions or do you have to jet, which is completely understandable? Yeah, I have a few more minutes. Okay, awesome. Um, so I want to be respectful and ask uh, Aniket, are you, is that, if I'm saying that correctly, please clarify me. And then we're going to get to Amanda real quick and then we're going to wrap up, folks. So this is tremendous. Aniket, what's on your mind today? Yeah, you pronounced my name correctly more than most of my countrymen. Um, hi, hi, Wes. Uh, for uh, you, uh, who's queen of spiky point of view, I'm going to ask a spiky question itself. One thing that I've been observing with cohort-based courses, especially the ones who are launching them for the first time around, is the price. Um, if you've spent years in the field in acquiring credibility and authority, it makes sense to maybe price it above in four digits on dollars. But people who are launching them for the first time around not build the credibility at, say, 600 $800. It makes uh, you think that uh, maybe they have understood the principles of cohort-based courses the wrong way. What's your opinion about the pricing mechanisms when it comes to cohort-based courses and what is, how can one set the right price for their cohort-based course? Yes, this is a fantastic question. Setting the price of your cohort-based course is so different for every instructor and every trader because each person brings a different a different level of credibility and has a different audience with different willingness to pay. So it's kind of like saying, can a marketing consultant charge fifty dollars 
$100 per hour, $500 per hour, $1,000, $2,000 per hour. There, there are marketing consultants who charge all those price points, ranging from $50 or below, $25 an hour, all the way to $1,000 per hour. And, and thinking about, like, well, what is the difference between them? I mean, some of it is due to credibility and actual skill and value that that person brings. A lot of it is also the perceived value that, that person brings. So is the person who's charging, you know, whatever high amount way better than someone who's charging a low amount? Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. And it's, so it's hard for me to say, like, is that, is that person worth it or are they not? Uh, it's also too simplistic to say, well, that person is just a scammer. Like, look at them trying to gouge their customers or whatever. It really depends on the market. And I think the market also, the market always corrects itself. So someone who is maybe overcharging and not bringing the value that they uh, supposedly supposedly should for charging whatever amount for their course, the market corrects itself. They're not going to get away with it for that long because their students, soon to be alumni, are going to be like, yeah, that course is only okay. I kind of want a refund and or I don't recommend that my friends do this. And like that person just doesn't get away with it for that long. Whereas a course that is very high quality, that is also expensive, if your students are getting a lot out of it and they feel like, you know, if given the chance that they would do it again, that they felt like it was a good decision, that they want to tell their friends about it, then that that course is going to spread. I love this. That is such a great point and a great question, Etiquette. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for asking that question. Yeah, thank you. Yes, absolutely. And so let's get to our last great speaker on stage as well. Amanda, you are another tremendous content creator. You're doing tremendous marketing at SparkToro. You and I spoke just a couple weeks ago. And thank you for joining us this morning. How are you doing? What's on your mind? Hi. Hey, Brian. Thank you. Um, You know what? Nothing like saying we need more women here for me to take the bait and jump in. So... Good on you. <laughs> um, so my question is, you know, Wes, uh, I don't think I've ever told you this, but your advice just over the years and your writings have been really formative for me as an online writer. Um, and one piece of advice that you've said and written about is the notion of getting eaten by the bear. Uh, so every time I write something or every time I tell a story out loud, all I can think is get to, I get almost eaten by the bear. <laughs> but, <laughs> It's so much oh my better god, I love t- it. <laughs> it's the best. I'm like, get eaten by the bear. Um, but it's better when you tell it. So maybe if we could kind of end on this advice. Can you can you explain this concept to, to the group here? Yes, thank you, Amanda. Uh, yes, okay. So the idea of starting a story right before you get eaten by the bear is the idea that a lot of times we let backstory take up too much space. So I call that backstory scope creep where, you know, I've been on 30 minute phone calls where 25 minutes was spent on backstory and we only had five minutes to actually talk about the thing that we wanted to talk about. And this is especially tough when you, you know, finally get a call, get on a call with um, someone that you want to get advice from or, or someone you want feedback from and you're excited to hear what advice they have for you. And then you realize at the end that, holy shit, I just spent 90% of the time telling them about the situation and I only had 10% of the time to actually hear what they had to say. So this idea of start, starting right before you get eaten by bear is, you know, based on the example of, you know, let's say you are going camping and, you know, you don't want to spend a bunch of time talking about how you went to REI to pick up some weatherproof tents uh, and then you had to, you had to book the 
camping ground and there were some logistical errors with your credit card and then you had to drive five hours and on the way you know some something was rattling in your car and basically all this boring stuff you you want to skip that and and start pretty much right before your friend jim leaves a cliff bar out in his tent and you all almost get mauled by bears like that is the exciting part of the story and if you spend all this time talking about this other stuff then by the time that you get to the exciting part, your audience has already walked away or, you know, their eyes have already glazed over. And so this idea of start right before you get eaten by the bear means to cut out all this, this extra backstory. And I use it myself all the time too, when I'm thinking about what's the minimum amount of backstory that I can tell someone so that we can get the actual conversation or the actual discussion started or the actual story started. Ooh, how is that, Amanda? Did you like that story? Fuck yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, Amanda, for joining us and for asking that question. You gave a great story the other day when we spoke about a lobster, which I know. The you... lobster story, classic. Oh, God. And now we're talking about a bear. So maybe we're creating a theme here, right? I know that it's just a little bit of a, a tangent. But thank you for that question. Thank you for that story as well, Wes. And again, I want to be respectful of your time. So, you know, quick recap, and then I want to ask you, what are you doing next? Okay, so for folks, every time we have these rooms, it's great to talk, but it's always helpful to do a quick recap what was helpful what stood out what can you walk away with what can you take away so real quickly we talked about transferable skills but very importantly it's not necessarily a thinking problem or uh rather it is a thinking problem can you clarify that wes or it is not a writing problem yeah, it's not necessarily a writing problem. It might be a thinking problem. Exactly. There we go with that one. We talked about threads. We talked about creating value for your audience and creating the right hook. Of course, you can learn from experts like Sawhill Bloom and Sean Peary who are writing and have, rather, uh, Maven courses. Go check those ones out. We talked about introversions, of course, right? Many folks in this audience, you may be an introvert. Well, it's okay to not be afraid. Give it a go. Share your language. Share how you would speak and do it in public. This right here is a great way way to start sharing your voice as well, doing it here on Twitter Spaces. Uh, of course, you can do little breakout rooms as well. You don't have to have huge audiences and you can just be able to put yourself in situations that you're not competing for the mic. It's just you and a few or if not one other person. Uh, we've had great questions from people like Mark and Henry and Anakit and Amanda as well. Um, of course, just making sure that you can DM people in advance. Ask your questions to them so that you set yourself up for when you do post. They're able to chime in immediately. Uh, we talked about with Henry scaling cohorts and using segments of groups, littler groups, that can be powerful. Uh, and then Anakid as well, you asked about pricing, which is just so, so important, uh, making sure that you're not overcharging, right? The market will correct you. So hopefully that's a great recap for people. There's so much more that you can do if you want to follow up. There's, there will be the recording for this, and I'll put some of these notes into a tweet. But Wes, I want to thank you, and I want to ask, what's next for you? We're kicking off 2022. What next big thing are you working on? And you're mute. Uh, you're muted. You're on your mic, by the way. So are you are you speaking oh, someplace? You. Yeah, are you speaking. What's coming up next for you, Wes? Yeah, uh, the big thing that I'm working on right now is hiring. So we have a bunch of open roles on the business side. So if anyone is excited about the future of online education, definitely hit me up. And I'm also speaking at South by Southwest in March. 
Ooh, South by Southwest. Check that out, folks. It's a tremendous place. And Wes, I want to thank you again. Uh, I hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope you'll come back soon. It's great to see you, Amanda, back here as well. Uh, I host these rooms every single week with great content creators, great marketers, leaders, thinkers, and doers. Tomorrow, Friday, I have a tremendous, uh, speaking of education, a tremendous professor uh, from here in the U.S. who's going to be talking about all things astrobiology. We're switching up the topics a bit, um, but she's wondering, are, is there life on other planets? And uh, there could be. So we'll find out more. Again, we're doing fascinating conversations with great thinkers and doers here on Twitter Spaces. And Wes, I want to thank you once again. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, everyone. All right, everyone. Have a great rest of your day. This is the best podcast. BEST stands for Business, Entrepreneurship, Startups, and Technology. I'm your host, Adam Sockledge, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon.